Hello and welcome to Cybersecurity Business. I'm your host, Kevin Poucher, the COO of K-Logics. And in place of Kevin West today, we have Katie Hogue, our Marketing Director. Hello. Katie, say hello to our audience. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. As always, the goal of our podcast is to interview CISOs and other security leaders to hear their advice on the business of information security. This podcast gives our listeners actionable takeaways to help them increase the effectiveness of their security programs. Today we're joined by Chris Dunning, CSO of Affineon Group. Chris, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. So to kick it off, Chris, we thought you could give our listeners a little bit of information about your background. Talk to us uh, perhaps about your background, how you got into information security, and, and maybe briefly walk us through your career. I think you, you've worked for some really interesting organizations and some certainly some high-profile ones along the way. Sure, Kevin. Thanks. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was um, actually earlier today meeting with a new manager just starting out, and the advice I gave him when he meets his new team and starts working, be sure to sit down and ask them their story because everybody's story is different and ultimately plays into, you know, how you work with them going forward. The my, mine started as a project manager. So I was working for a regional bank in Rhode Island um, doing uh, data center implementations, configuration in the uh, mid-80s. Uh, the interesting part of the story is one day I get a phone call to um, stop what I was doing and come to the VP's office. And I walk in and there's a couple of blue suits and my boss sitting there. And I get introduced and find out that there are external auditors and I guess they were able to debit the CEO's personal checking account at the bank one penny because of a lack of controls within the banking business process. So that was my first project um, working to implement um, RACF which was a mainframe security tool for the bank and the interesting part of the story is I was given unlimited resources um, and unlimited money to get it done because this was going to have a direct impact on the bank's ability to operate as a bank. Right. So, completed the project, big pizza party at the end, and uh, went back to see my boss and said, you know, what's the next project? And he said, come on, we have to go see the VP again. So I walked back into the VP's office and they sit me down and they said, um, you're good at this. Um, as of this afternoon, you've been appointed the IT security manager for the company and I said okay what happened to so-and-so and they said so-and-so doesn't work here anymore so started to realize that not only is this uh, you know an exciting dynamic field it also can be very limiting on your career if you don't do it well um, so from there I just um, you know stayed at the bank uh, banks in the 80s were acquired by the banks before I knew it I was working for Bank of Boston and I became a regional security officer responsible for multiple banks, lines, um, and then had another opportunity to uh, move over to the insurance industry. And uh, quickly realized I had a unique skill set in the fact that I could build security organizations because of my understanding of how security tools and technology got implemented within the business process. It just was a logical thing for me to do to build the people around it. So I went to an insurance company um, um, at the time called Allendale, it's now FM Global, and put their security organization in place and was there for about four or five years. Um, 
and technology just kept changing. And the challenge that a lot of, I think, the earlier and the older security professionals had was the fact that you were limited by the technology you touched. And some of the organizations had you know, leadership that wanted to silo that technology and didn't want to give full visibility. And there was this brand new thing called client server being developed, and I wanted to get involved with it. So I actually left there to go run disaster recovery and the service desks for Stanley Works, um, Stanley Tools in Newburgh, Connecticut. And um, you know, just wanted to do something a little bit different because I'd spent a lot of time in the data center space, technology, and then in a meeting with the um, CIO, somebody mentioned I did security, and two weeks later I was responsible for security at the Stanley Works. So it just became this thing early in the career where you did two things. You know, my background was data centers and infrastructure, but you also did security on top of that. And then I had a real good friend of mine who had been reaching out to me, um, who had left Stanley and gone over to Staples and wanted me to come over and join to work in the data center space, uh, kind of lead that organization. And it took a year for me to kind of get settled because uh, changes in my personal life. So between that time, I worked for a consulting firm that focused around HIPAA for a year, and then I also um, worked for IBM for about a year. Um, and then uh, finally made my way over to Staples, uh, where I became uh, a director responsible for uh, production delivery, which was the data center organization. But security was under it. So this was really the start in the early, you know, late 90s, early 2000, when security was starting to be recognized as a true you know, leadership role mm. that had to be recognized and report at the senior level within the company. Um, Staples at the time was a very big company and it was buried kind of deep within the operations side and this was just trying to get it higher up closer to the CIO. Uh, so about two years I think into that tenure um, things started to change. Large-scale breaches in the Northeast. Everybody was talking about BJ's which was down the road and all sorts of things happening, and it's when a lot of the compliance requirements, when you know, PCI started to evolve from, you know, you know the CISP program into the true PCI program, and SOX was being launched, and um, the CIO at the time said it was time for me to move into that role full time, mm -hmm. um, and then for the remainder of my tenure, about seven years, um, that's what I was responsible for at Staples through all different iterations of challenges from a business process point of view. But it's where I kind of really started to focus on this view um, with one of my coworkers, I'll give him a shout out, Ed Kelleher, who was really smart when it came to understanding the business processes. And um, so he taught me a lot, and I've used that ever since as kind of my foundation for establishing any good, strong security program within an organization. You have to understand your business processes, your business use cases for data, and put appropriate controls in place, and be smart about it so you're not wasting money, and that you're not you know, missing the risks that you have. Um, and then, um, you know, I left Staples in 2009 and have done a few um, smaller companies, which, which I really enjoy, which are all, um, you know, investor-owned, VC-owned, uh, that are all really trying to do something new and different. And uh, one of those first companies was um, an e-learning company. Um, and then from there, um, you know, uh, 
you know, you know, moved into um, the uh, business services, so call center services, uh, you know, and dealt with uh, 30,000 plus employees and the challenges that come from people, mm-hmm. um, to now being over at the Affinian Group, um, which is uh, one of the largest volume, you know, credit card businesses I've ever been involved with. Um, really focusing around the services that we provide from a, a loyalty and travel and membership services um, as a third party to other very large mm-hmm. financial institutions and other companies. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously seen such an evolution take place from the start of your career to where we are now. How would you describe the current maturity of the CISO role and information security as a whole? Oof, it's a loaded one. So it's it's hard, you know, because when you when when you look at, you know, the evolution, has it gotten better? Definitely, mm-hmm. you know, um, but it's still a game of averages, you know. You know, we're you know kind of gambling a little bit because there's no way to be one hundred percent secure. If you're going to be one hundred percent secure, you're going to have everything locked down so tight that you can't be in business. You know, uh, you have to have some amount of sharing of information with your customers, with your vendors and third parties that you work with, with your employees. I mean, and you know, risk is one of those things that you truly, truly need to understand and manage to. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's gotten much better. I think we understand risk much better than we ever have in the past. The other thing I think that the industry has done, and when I say that, both from an information protection and from an information technology point of view, um, we understand where all the big risks are and the low-hanging fruit. You know, and I think that's why so much focus has been placed on you know, um, you know, credit card data and, and our ability to use that and protect it. What's happening, and I think everybody sees this happening now, is um, you know, governments and laws are being put in place from a privacy point of view that are creating complexity that aren't necessarily managing to risk, but managing to the expectations of the people that live within the countries where those laws apply. And we have to stay focused on, you know, how do we lace that into business? Because you see people very comfortable having trusted relationships with a business and opting out and sharing their information, where it's, which is how it should be. You know where we we have the ability to share information, but rec- recognizing that once we have that information, we have a, a you know a, a duty and a responsibility to ensure that it's truly protected. Mm-hmm. You you kind of bucked the trend in terms of you were a CISO before there was a CISO title, yeah, and you came up really with a with a business focused background for a security leader, whereas the trend we tend to see is is coming up the ranks from a more technical role. Mm-hmm. So do you see that as, as, as changed? Does the new CISO of, of today and tomorrow require a more business-focused leader? So one of the things that um, I was involved with um, a few years back was uh, Dartmouth University's uh, School of Business, the Tuck Business School, mm-hmm. has an executive ed program and worked with a couple of the directors there to provide input to a program that they were running, which was, you know, the business essentials for the information security professional. And the focus really there was how do we give 
you know, those midline manager individuals, the level of understanding that they have or they need going forward, because they've got the technical skill. You know, a lot of, to your point, a lot of these people came up through the engineering ranks. And you know, what's the best way to ruin an engineer is to give him a management title, you know, because now we can't do the thing that he loves and he's got to deal with this person not showing up to work and the various pieces and parts that go with that versus taking somebody who's in a management role, who is technical, and getting them to understand to be, you know, a security leader, you've got to understand the financials and how they apply to the company. You've got to understand, you know, you know, risk and how to measure it and define it. You know, you, you've got to be able to speak the language of the business. You have to be able to turn off the technical speak. And, you know, I, you know, sometimes call myself a translator. I sometimes call myself a fixer. But the reality is, if I get a room of very technical people together, I can talk to them and then leave the room and then go talk to the C-suite and say, this is what that translates to from a risk point of view and what it translates into from a business point of view. And getting more of those leaders lower in the ranks is just very powerful because in the day-to-day -day decisions that they make, you can have a level of confidence and, and comfort mm -hmm. that, that they're not just doing technology for the sake of technology, they're constantly taking the business view. So why don't we switch gears and talk about the dark web and what it means for at-risk data in organizations. So let's start it at a high level, like what, without getting too deep, yeah. what is the dark web? I think there could be a perception that the dark web is, you know, some individual technical people sitting in a basement in, in four corners of the world. Or uh, is this a more sophisticated operation with networks of people and in some instances, even even nation state sponsored. Like, what's your view of the dark web, and why is it such a risk? Yeah. So you know the the risk has been there for a long time. This is an old problem with a new name. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a long, long time. You know, so um, I've had opportunities to work uh, with law enforcement, um, both at the state and the federal level. Um, for many years, and it's always had um, the focus of partnership and our ability to help ourselves is very important. You know, one of the things I say to people all the time is, especially in, you know, security incident and kind of breach response, um, wherever you're located, there is a local field office for the FBI or the Secret Service. Um, uh, look them up online, get the number, call up and ask to talk to the, the agent in charge for investigations in your area. Hmm. Establish that relationship so that you have it. Um, you know, I'll go back to um, the Clinton era, so under um, Janet Reno. So um, I worked a case um, where we had a contractor working at a company I was at um, who was arrested the, the weekend, over the weekend, on a Sunday. And we found out about it because his name and picture was on the front page of the Sunday paper. So imagine having to show up to work Monday morning and have to go talk to the management staff that somebody who works in the building, not necessarily an employee, he was a contractor, 
but somebody who was working in the building was just arrested by the FBI and had a record for hacking. Wow. And then, you know, how do you, you know, you know what do you do next, right. you know, sort of thing. So, um, you know, FBI came out to the office, you know, worked with us, and um, things started to make sense. You know, we found out that um, um, through the help desk, some equipment had gone missing. Um, we had found out that he was trying to um, set up a file share service for his family on our network, mm -hmm. just all different things. Mm -hmm. the, the, the short version of the story is he was a young kid who was, you know, working off of, uh, let's just call them hacker sites, mm -hmm. you know, sites that are specifically set up um, by like-minded individuals to share information, tools, and technology on how to hack. And he was frequenting himself there. Um, so we, um, you know, um, walked him out the door, um, provided the evidence to um, the FBI, and he got a year in federal prison. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you know, it's 25 years ago. Um, his uh, ambition was to become a great hacker, not to steal anything, not to not to gain value or money. So today, it's very different. Today, it's, it is nation state funded. It is um, in certain parts of the world where individuals um, see a better career path by taking that route and they are actually recruited to do it. And you know, um, they can make less money taking the legal route or they can make lots lots and lots of money taking the illegal route. Now is that you know the majority of the population? No. Um, but you know companies like Russia and China you know have very active programs where they're looking to find what they mm -hmm. can about us. You know um, China is a little bit different. You know China um, is a country that looked to grow and evolve through taking of information and that's well known mm -hmm. and for years they've been doing it. Um, what a lot of people don't know is the amount of support that the government places into everything to do that. Um, you know one of the opportunities I had was to spend some time with an individual who was a former you know high-ranking person you know with um, the Chinese government and who left and defected to the US and shared the fact that you know their entire philosophy was to just steal everything that they could from us and in most cases we made it easy because um, as a country we don't recognize that philosophy or believe that that's the right way to do it. Um, there's also um, this value that comes from information and you know we've talked about this before where the the focus around you know protecting PII and protecting you know credit card and protecting you know health information you know there are different regulations like PCI and HIPAA and GLB and and now you know a lot of the, the specific requirements coming in from Europe through GDPR but the reality here is a lot of companies, if they actually look closely at their business processes, they'll see that there's other types of data that can be immediately turned into cash. 
and you know, call it the dark web, call it you know, subversive websites, call it just bad people that have access to do those types of things. Everything from your driver's license number to your loyalty cards has value and can be sold immediately for cash. On so the how internet. do you so how do you quantify that risk into dollars? And can you give us a, a maybe a use case into just how devastating? this could be to an organization. Yeah, so um, the company um, that I currently work at, um, we're a, um, a large mm. you know, loyalty company. Mm. And, and, and gift cards are part of the, the program that actually you know, provides uh, services uh, to our customers and our clients. At the end of the day, um, it's common and for the bad guys to look for business processes that they can manipulate. So most companies say, you know, we want to be on LinkedIn. We want people to see our company. We want to see that this is a great place to work. It's a great place to recruit people. I need, you know, a specific, you know, database developer. I need somebody that can do marketing. Well, let's go look on LinkedIn. Let's see if we can find somebody and, you know, ping them and see if they're interested in a job. Never mind the whole LinkedIn, you know, job market services that they offer as well. So, you know, it's common for everybody to say, you know, I'm Chris Dunning, you know, I'm the CSO at the Affinian Group. Well, what happens if you say, you know, I'm John Smith and I'm responsible for very sensitive data that's worth millions of dollars, but I don't say it that way. I say it that I'm a procurement manager. Well, next thing, if I'm a bad guy, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start sending phishing emails to that person so maybe I can download remote control software and take over his PC and see what he really does, how he does it, and then ultimately manipulate and steal things that are worth you know thousands if not millions of dollars. And that's a, a very vague way of saying that's a very common thing that happens across a lot of industries. Look at the number of phishing emails that you get. And the reality here is every company, every mail service has very sophisticated scanning that looks for all that and filters it out. So if you really think about it, the ones that are coming through are the ones that are most sophisticated, number one, or have been specifically targeted at you. They know who you are, they know what you do, and they're trying to trick you into giving it up. And that's very different than what it was 25 years ago. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you don't have to be a victim, but you have to operate it at a pace and a speed where you can be wise enough to understand that you could be the victim. Mm -hmm. And that's a very important distinction to make. So when you talk about business process, where does security need to come into play? Should it be in all business process discussions? How does a CISO get to that point where they know they're truly part of the business process. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very lucky. In the current organization I'm in, I own multiple facets of, the, of, of, of that process. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of it too is, um, you know, I did dual roles here for a few years where I was also the VP of IT infrastructure for the company. So when you look at security and technology infrastructure, that they are truly integrated at this company. Um, I've since stepped away from that role. We appointed a new VP of technology. 
but the information protection requirements are really laced into the technology. I also have governance compliance under me as well, which it should, but what we did is we created a new organization um, that we call data governance. And I like to call it the high-risk data discovery team. And it's their job to actually go out and look for um, and to review business processes that might be at risk. Um, you know, often, you know, we do samplings when it comes to audits. We don't look at everything. When we look at high-risk data discovery, we look at everything. So, you know, looking at any type of process, any type of process that takes payment, that gives money, that gives data that could be turned into money, you know, you know, talking a little bit about what things, what their value is, you know, everybody knows credit cards are attacked and searched for within companies when they have incidents or breaches. And what they're looking for and what, you know, PCI was really developed to protect, it wasn't the single transaction, it's the large store of credit cards. The bad guys aren't going to take the time and effort to steal one card. It's too risky, it's too much work, there's just no return on the investment. But if they can get to a file that has 50 million credit cards in it, they've hit the gold mine. Well, what happens if they get a file that has 50 million loyalty accounts? Well, if they're smart enough to figure out the business process, they could figure out how to get to those loyalty programs and start booking travel and start turning that into gift cards. Well, what's to say if they break into some biomedical company or some health services company and they download millions of medical records and those records include you know prescriptions for you know some opioid and they find a way to manipulate the business process to then turn that into you know medications that they're able to you know to sell or steal I don't know what the risk is I do know that if you don't know what your business process is you're at risk and to compound that if you don't know the business processes that use data that can be immediately turned into cash on the web, then you are blind. You so that's really where have to be able So to that's do. where you start, understanding yeah. the business process? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is that the recommendation you yes. would give to a new CISO that doesn't know where to start? Yeah, and I'd go in, you know, based upon his business and what he does, figuring out where are the large stores of data and how are they used within the business process. And based on those data types, what's their value? And, and really kind of look at it through the lens of, if I was a bad guy and I was get to, to get hold of this data, what could I do with it? Mm -hmm. And then what about when it comes to getting that mind share with the board and executives? How does the CISO then communicate the importance and the value of that? Yeah. So um, we have a program, our incident response program at the company, um, we call it the First 48. Um, First 48 is a great way to market and promote um, the effectiveness of security incident response. When you talk about security incidents, it sounds kind of cold and kind of ridiculous because who wants to hear about, you know, somebody got locked out of their computer or somebody was dumb enough to leave their computer in their backseat and got stolen. But the reality here is um, the first 48 is really designed after homicide uh, you know, the law enforcement's homicide investigation process because it, it forces the team to respond and provide as much information as possible around the event within 48 hours. And then you make a decision. You either becomes a larger event or you shut it down so you don't waste the team's time. 
But what it also did, it went from, you know, most organizations, every company I've ever gone to work for, the first thing I ask the team when I walk in is, you know, show me your monthly security incident report. And I think, you know, 90% of the companies I've worked at, the response I got was, we don't have security incidents, so we don't have a report. And then usually two months after being, you know, tenured into the company, we've got a report that's running between 50 to 100 events a month. And those are small security incidents, but they, they give you kind of the, the tone of what's going on, where you're seeing five things happening here. That might be a bigger issue that you're not seeing over there. You know, that type of situation. Um, so I, I think that plays a big part into kind of understanding kind of the risks, the pieces, and parts that you need to focus on more than anything else. I'm trying to remember the original question because I was going somewhere with Communicating this. Communicating to the board. Ah, the board. So, so, then, um, so then that becomes uh, a quarterly report to the board. And it was so interesting because I'll go in once or twice a year and I'll kind of present to the board on specifically the, you know, the annual strategy for information protection, whatever issues have come up and kind of what we're dealing with from a risk point of view. But they always want to talk through some of the specifics of the incident report. So I didn't know that it become this really interesting topic at the board meeting where then I could go in and I could add some kind of color behind some of the events and what had happened, where originally I wanted it so that I could present to the team those types of things that were creating certain scenarios that might have been bigger issues. The board took it, looked at it, and saw the same thing and wanted to understand what the implications were, either from project priority or funding. You gave an interesting example earlier of somebody potentially spear phishing mm -hmm. via LinkedIn, a procurement person. Yep. Um, I know you're a big advocate of internal security training and awareness, so is, uh, is that part of your overall strategy when thinking about how to better protect yourself from being a victim of data theft on the dark web? Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of it comes down to how often and how creative you are. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this thing called the awareness calendar. And what it is, is it's a calendar that gets published after the fact. So my expectation was that we do so many things that there's no way we could keep track of all the awareness things that are going on that on a monthly basis, we have to create a calendar and show on each day all the stuff that happened so that we can look at that and say, okay, we're not doing enough consistently through the month. We're doing too much at the top. We're not doing enough. Well, we missed two weeks. What happened? Those types of things. But it has to be real. It has to be real time. Um, so we use um, the Fish Me tool for phishing. So if somebody gets something, they just click on it. The mail goes away. It gets logged. It goes to the incident response team, and they manage it. You know, previously you know, we tell people, oh, if you had a fish happen, you know, call the service desk. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then what to do? Don't touch the email. Don't do anything with it. You know, the Fish Me link takes the email right out of their mailbox. Mm -hmm. All the risk goes away, and we can respond to it. Uh, the other part of that is we actually run our own internal phishing against our own people using the same tool. So we'll create the fish, we send it to them, mm -hmm. and then we measure, did they read it? Did they open the attachment? Did they click on the link and see just mm -hmm. how bad it was? And then appropriate training. And it's something you have to do a lot. And when I say that, it's, it's gotten to the point where 
and you could say this good or bad, we do an announcement about a new service or product that's coming out. It came from the service desk, and everybody's clicking on the fish me button saying this is a fish. And it's a legitimate email. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just as easy for them to send out a notice saying it wasn't a fish. And there's the reasons why they can get back to the people directly and let mm -hmm. them know. So um, it's a challenge. It really is. I, I'll give you a, another interesting story. We had a, a fish that had happened within the organization. Um, same type of thing. Yeah. HR, click on this link. We need you to provide this information. And we understand, or came to under, understand that the people who responded to it, they responded differently based upon their culture. So what we found was um, certain phishing attacks, if you were American-born, and you know, my office is based in the Stanford area, so let's just say a lot of New York City culture, and if HR wants you to do X, Y, and Z, the first response was, I'm too busy, why are they asking me this? They should know it, and they just ignore the email. If you are, uh, 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 a two-language citizen born in another country came here sometime during your life you see authority different and we had several individuals all in that case three of them who responded to the fish because they thought HR is asking they're an authority I have to give them the information mm -hmm. so we started to tailor the training to actually tell all employees, no matter where you're from, what country you originated from, or you currently work in, because we're all over the world, it doesn't, no member of management, no member of HR would ever ask you for a password. And we had to reinforce that over and over again because they saw authority as different. Hmm. And in terms of metrics, do you collect on average so many people click this month versus this month and are able to show to your executives or just your team, here's how we're improving. And then along with that, what about benchmarking against similar companies in your industry with their phishing rates? Does that occur? Yeah, no, no benchmarking. And the, the challenge that we often have is, you know, which industry do we align to? You know, we mm -hmm. provide services for banking, but we're not a bank. So we tend to fall into the financial services space. But we do do the first part, which is um, we do it by department. We fish a whole team. We Based on their results, they get refished. based on their results. So each time, based on their results, there's certain things that happen. So if you, you know, open the email, click on the link, you get training. You open the email, clicked on the link, and gave up your credentials, you get a one-on-one -on -one session with a trainer. Try to understand what you were thinking mm -hmm. um, and create a moment that hopefully you'll think again instead of just saying, oh, go take the training course. Mm -hmm. um, second training, they do it to them again with a different email. And if they fall for it again, it's a person that goes sits down and, and tries to figure out what's the disconnect. Mm -hmm. It isn't about yelling at them. It mm -hmm. isn't about firing them or getting them in trouble. It's you got to understand because you know we're obviously doing some, or we've figured out something that if the bad guys figured it out, you'd give up your credentials every time. Mm -hmm. 
And usually by the second time, they get it. And they actually become the advocate for this and are very vocal around the organization about what they've learned. And just ingrain it in them so yeah, much. Well, that's not, you gotta spend some time figuring out the why. Why mm -hmm. do they do it? Yeah. That's the root cause yeah. of the problem, yeah. So uh, I know, you know we, we talked earlier and you kind of started part of the conversation in your career talking about some of the um, kind of first most prominent breaches, right? People yep. would point to companies like BJ's. And so we also talked about how the dark web is really just a new name for an old problem. So, you know, people certainly have gotten more sophisticated. Sure. I think companies have also gotten smarter, right? Security, as we've discussed today, has become um, more prominent. By and large, corporate America, are we more secure today than we were yesterday? I think we're trying to evolve as the security challenge evolves. So the, we're only as good as the risk that we know and understand. So, you know, I'd, I'd love yeah. to say there's a, yeah. an A, B, and a C. Yeah. Um, there has to be a level of effort that's consistent and remains consistent for the ever-evolving risks that are happening. Mm. You know, who, who would have thought that a foreign country could have weaponized Facebook into manipulating people's behavior, right? You know, a lot of people, you know, focus on a lot of the risk that's happening within our worlds today. Um, you know, talking about, you know, different tragedies and events that have happened. And, you know, that's, that's the closest I've seen to a, a 9-11 level cyber attack, you know, to many countries. I mean, we weren't the only ones uh, that they've, you know, done and, and done that level of manipulation. And, you know, I think everybody's seeing right now how that's continuing mm. uh, to the point where Facebook is saying, we need help. <laughs> These guys are really good at this. Yeah. You know. Well said. So I think we're about out of time. Um, Chris, we really want to thank you for joining us today. I think our listeners will benefit from a lot of this information. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for yeah, joining us. Thank fun. you again. Appreciate the time. And as always, you can find uh, more about this and other podcasts on our website, klogicsecurity.com forward slash podcast.